Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Venk Bellamconda. Hello and welcome to Always On EM. My name is Venk. I'm Alex. We are your co-hosts for the show, and today we're going to stick our nose into something a little challenging, sometimes chaotic and always colorful. We're going to talk about epistaxis with one of our amazing otorhinolaryngologists, Dr. Mike Olson. Mike is a graduate of Mayo Medical School and practices here in Rochester, Minnesota, where he has been recognized as having some of the best patient-centered outcomes in the clinic and been recognized as a top doctor for Minnesota before. Not only does he bring that experience, but Mike understands what we do in emergency medicine better than most, as he worked as a PA in our department for several years and has served the community as a paramedic before that and as a dispatcher as well. Mike, we're so glad, so, so glad to have you on the show, and thank you for all you're doing, and your journey is really inspiring. Thank you so much. Alex, Venk, great to be here. Really excited about doing this talk. Anytime I get to come back to the emergency department and talk to folks really brings a lot of joy to my heart, so thanks again for inviting me. You're always welcome, especially (laughs) if there's any ENT stuff. You you would be like an angel descending from that ivory tower. I'm very sad that I don't get to walk down there as much as I used to, but it's, it's always fun to be in the emergency department. I'd be curious, what did you think of epistaxis when you were a PA? Oh, that's a great question. I enjoyed it. Maybe that's why I ended up heading towards ENT when I became an MD. I always thought it was a challenge, a technical challenge. That's what I loved about the ER the most is technical things, whether it was suturing or fracture reduction or doing things. That's probably what led me to the emergency department in the first place. So I kind of took it as a challenge. I loved it. I thought it was great. I was dissatisfied when I couldn't stop it and I had to call the ENTs. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I bet you were probably better than most at that I I wasn't technically good at it. No. Like knowing what I know now, I look back and think, oh man, you, sh- you definitely didn't know what you were doing, but it was something I didn't still enjoy doing or tried to do. And like you guys know, most epistaxis can be easily controlled so or readily controlled it was a fun thing to work on and most of the time worked out well when I was down there as a PA right I feel completely inadequate with epistaxis it's oh. one of my Achilles heels I have many I'm many <laughs> footed <laughs> and this that. is one of them so I'm really excited about today good what about you Alex I'm impressed by two things about epistaxis. Number one is its ability to frustrate me on a clinical shift. I'll feel like I did a really great job. Patient's looking great. They're just about to leave. And <laughs> yeah, and I remember then those. Yeah, I remember this those starts again. <laughs> or they're 20 minutes out of the door after discharge. Yeah. Uh, they're back. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, um, it can be. It can be frustrating. And At least so your patients per shift numbers go yeah, up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is the sheer spectrum of it. You know, on the one hand, there's somebody who presents a couple of times in the winter and has a dry nose. And I was joking with Vank about this beforehand. When I was an intern, I remember thinking about epistaxis as something that wasn't very serious. It was more of an annoyance. And I was working a night shift with an incredible attending, Daniel Cabrera. And I was an intern, and they set off the recess pager. And I remember wandering over, and my senior was a early senior, and so we were both a little bit green. And it was an older gentleman on anticoagulation. Blood was just pouring down his face in the back of his throat. And it was one of the first times as an intern where I walked in and I just thought, this person's gonna die. This person's gonna die right here in front of us. And as an intern, 
I was not prepared for that situation. I didn't know what to do, and that scared me. And I looked up at my senior, who was a really incredible person, and they did not know what to do. This was a, a situation of Daniel Cabrera saving the day. He just grabbed red rubber foley and jumped in wordlessly, stopped the bleeding, and then went on about his day. And it was one of the many times where I look at Daniel Cabrera as a hero. But that night sticks out so vividly to me as this spectrum of disease. I see it all the time. I'm going to go in, we're going to stop the bleeding. But then every now and then, it really takes yeah. your breath away. Yeah, it can. The, the spectrum of it, it, like you described, it can be very minimal or very serious. There's no doubt. Feel free to redirect me, but I think that we should start with anatomy. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start. You know, from a surgeon's perspective, you know, we have a great love of anatomy, so it's always a nice place to start. To me, there's so much anatomy crammed into such a small area. I can't keep the vessel straight. I'm <laughs> not entirely sure how to best to look in the nose. Yeah. Take us through it. How do you teach this to students? As we're talking about epistaxis and the bleeding, I think the first thing that you kind of think about is the arterial supply of the nose. And the nose, because it's designed to heat and humidify the air, the body has designed it to have a lot of blood vessels. So the posterior and anterior circulation of the nose comes from different sources. The posterior circulation, the thing that we think about the most, the sphenopalatine artery, is supplied by the external carotid and is a terminal branch of the maxillary artery. That artery is a big one from the nasal perspective. So when we get into this sort of posterior epistaxis, the more serious version of epistaxis, that's the artery that we're going to think about. Anteriorly, though, the most common source of epistaxis, the Kesselbeck's plexus, the Littles area, those very small blood vessels on the anterior septum, they come from a variety of different arteries and can be fed by anterior ethmoid arteries, they can be fed by posterior ethmoid arteries, they can be fed by the facial artery via the superior labial branch. So lots and lots of blood vessels to the nose. Again, related to what the nose's function is. It's designed to heat and humidify the air when you breathe in. So those blood vessels are plentiful and they're also very close to the skin. So that's the first thing to know about the vasculature is, is that there's a lot there. The next thing from an anatomic perspective is very important when you're going to talk about how to treat the, the nose and treat epistaxis. The septum is the structure that separates your right and left nasal cavity. And then we have three turbinates in the nose. There's the inferior turbinate, the turbinate that's certainly the most pertinent in this space. There's the middle turbinate, and then there's the superior or supreme turbinate. This is a very small turbinate and almost not of clinical relevance in this situation. And yet it's called supreme? It's called Supreme. <laughs> it's got small turbinate syndrome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From an anatomic perspective, I think if you think about it, not so much about the vessels involved, but just understanding that there are a lot of them there. And then also, I think more importantly, from an anatomic perspective, what's in the nose that's going to prevent you from stopping that bleeding, i.e., namely the septum. I think that's the key to understanding and treating epistaxis is knowing where the anatomy is. If you're trying to place some nasal packing in and you're hitting resistance, knowing what you think is causing that resistance is extremely important. So understanding the structural components of the nose, septum turbinates, is going to lead you to a higher rate of success in controlling epistaxis for sure. Is it relevant to know the 
structures of the soft tissues versus the cartilage versus... Yeah, not so much from an epistaxis perspective. You know, there are some things there that are important to just know on a general level. You know, the ala is typically composed of what we call the lower lateral cartilages. We divide the nose into thirds where there's the bony upper third, there's the middle third, and there's the lower third. The lower third, again, lower lateral cartilages. Middle third, that's the dorsal septal cartilage and what we call the upper lateral cartilages. And then the upper third is just the bony portion of the nose. From an epistaxis perspective, I think an external thing to think about is, you know, the upper third is going to do you no good because you can't put pressure on the upper third and expect anything to happen because that's just the nasal bones. The middle third of the nose, there is some likelihood that pressure in that area is going to help compress some of that Little's area or Kesselbach's plexus, so that's pertinent. But the lower third and the external nasal valve, all those areas, that's going to be where most of the pressure is to control that. So knowledge of that, I think, is a good general knowledge is good, but most of the bang for your buck in regards to treatment of epistaxis is going to be knowing what's going on on the inside. As an aside, what is the external nasal valve? Mm-hmm. Do you know this? I don't, never heard that. Yeah, there's two nasal valves. One's the internal nasal valve. One is the external nasal valve. So the internal nasal valve is comprised of a number of structures in the nose. The reason that we separate them is that the internal nasal valve is the most narrow part of the nose. And that comprises the septum, the floor of the nose, the head of the turbinate, and the upper lateral cartilage. So when we look at the nose from a breathing perspective, and I think you can even translate to epistaxis. If you're going to have a spot that that packing is going to really have a problem going in, that's going to be the internal nasal valve. And sometimes posteriorly, if they have a big septal spur or something deviated in the nose. The external nasal valve is mostly comprised of the outside part, where the external ala reside, the calumella. This is more pertinent from an obstructive perspective. A lot more people have external nasal valve problems than internal problems. And that we can get into the weeds there, <laughs> trust me. There is distinction there, and it mostly is pertaining to how people breathe through their nose. The degree to which you understand this small space I know, is right? inspiring. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I'd describe it like that. Part of that really resonated. I heard you stick something in and there's a lot of resistance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've, I've run into that. Oh yes, <laughs> all the time. Let's, and hopefully it's not a finger. <laughs> We've talked about the spectrum, and now we understand the anatomy a little bit better. Let's approach a bread and butter case and learn more about how you would do it, because I think that uh, something that I fall short on is I approach it more by, here's the steps I'm going to do. I have my approach, and this is how I'm going to do it, but I'd love to learn how you're approaching it in a more nuanced way. So let's just say we have a 60-year-old gentleman who presents with a first episode of epistaxis. He started a blood thinner last year, and the bleeding is annoying but not life-threatening at this point. When you go see that gentleman in in your clinic or when uh, we unfortunately have to call you down to the ED, what are you thinking when you walk in the room, and what do you do when you introduce yourself? This is a great scenario, I think a common one, and I think the thing that you pointed out with the history is the most important thing, like the anticoagulation, right? That's who we're going to see in the emergency department routinely, you know, the anticoagulated folks. So when I see that and I think of that, the first impression I get on the patient when I come into the room I think is a very important one. The patient with the bucket in front of their mouth and coughing up blood clots with their nose crimped, 
that's a different kind of patient that I think we're heading down towards a treatment perspective than the person with the clip on the nose and a clean shirt. That's a different patient. The latter is somebody that I think we probably can easily get by with a non-absorbable packing, something that I can easily deal with, probably solve their problem, get them out the door, not a big issue. The alternative case, the blood clots in the bucket, the continued oozing, the anticoagulated, the INR that's through the roof with a warfarin patient, those patients are going to need some more permanent or likely more robust packing to solve their issue. But when I walk into a room, it doesn't matter what it is, here's what I'm going to start off by understanding. When did it start? What side is it? How long has it been going on? What have you done prior to showing up today that you try to make it better? And most folks will say, you know, use some pressure. It's been going on for a couple days, and now it really has been very persistent. I might have tried some sprays, although that's kind of plus minus. I'm not sure a lot of people know that afferin or topical, topical decongestants or vasoconstrictors. So I don't think a lot of people know about that. So then the first thing I'm going to do is get the right equipment. That is I would say the most important thing I can teach emergency medicine providers in regards to how to manage this appropriately. And the equipment is extremely simple, I think, and I think most emergency departments have it on hand. So number one, nasal speculum. You're definitely not going to be able to see the nose unless you have a speculum. And number two, second most important thing is a headlight because you can't see in the nose unless you have a headlight. So if you have those two things, you can control a lot of nasal bleeding. And uh, if you have to pack somebody, pack them safely and comfortably without jamming things in their nose where it shouldn't go because of things like septal deviations, things like that. So now I have my equipment ready. I'm gonna have my headlight, I'm gonna have my speculum, and I'm gonna have some suction devices. I think a lot of emergency departments now have this sort of flexible, what we call Fraser suctions, where you can kind of bend the tip and it's a straight suction. The Yankauer suctions that are in typically all emergency department rooms are not great. Even the small ones, that's a pretty still, pretty big bore suction. Now you may need that for those big clots that you're trying to evacuate out of the nose. But I would start off with just a 10 French, 12 French kind of nasal suction. And then, you know, you got to get everything prepped and ready. You get chucks on the patient, buckets for spitting, medicines for spraying, all the packing material that you may or may not need, whether it's absorbable or non-absorbable packing. And then you stand by your patient. That's the first step. I think prep is super important because if you're not prepared, suction in hand, when you release that clip and you try to evaluate that, you're, if you run into that big gush of blood and it's all on the floor, or on the patient's lap, then you're gonna be in tough shape. So that's the first place to start. I would say the next place to start from a treatment perspective is topicalization. Even if it's a profound bleed, like that clip comes out and it's just running out of the nose, I think there's still some value in topicalization. How you topicalize is really important and what you topicalize with is important. The best topicalization medication and the one that provides the greatest anesthesia is topical cocaine. Now, topical cocaine we used to keep in our emergency department. I'm not sure if we still do. It's a fairly rare medicine outside of operating rooms, but what it does is two things. It's a profound vasoconstrictor, and it's also a very profound nasal anesthetic, so it can be really helpful in that regard. The challenge with it is it's not typically a medicine that comes in a spray bottle, and so you typically have to get 
nasal pledgets or something to deliver the medicine in the nose. But that's probably the most rare type of medicine to use, but also the most beneficial one. So when you don't have that, which you're likely not going to have, I think the next thing is just standard things like oxymetazoline, that's afrin, phenylephrine, all those sprays are vasoconstrictors and they can be very effective. I would commonly tell my interns and residents, if that patient isn't feeling like it's going down the back of your throat, you're not doing enough of it. You really got to put a large volume in, squeeze that bottle very, very hard to get it in the back. So that's a really important tool. Nowadays, when I was a resident, we didn't have the benefit of TXA or transexamic acid. Now, whomever decided to put that in a nasal spray was a genius. I don't know who did it, but kudos to them. So our residents now are using that medicine, TXA spray, plus oxymetazoline when they arrive to an epistaxis patient. I think that's a great first topicalization strategy. Getting the medicine is important. So clots, what's in the nose, and getting those clots out is an important step in the treatment. And there's a variety of ways of doing it. One is to have the patient blow the clots out, and the other is to suction the clots out. I'm a little bit torn on which is better. I think probably in the sake of time and skill and effort and energy, blowing the clots out is a really effective way. Now, when somebody's blowing hard, you could stir up some bleeding that was perhaps a little bit more controlled because there's some clot in there and it's you know somebody who does a lot of blowing, a lot of pressure, builds up that Valsalva, can increase the blood pressure to the head. And so you might regret doing that, not always, but you could. The suctioning of clot is a really nice way because what you're doing is you're seeing as you're taking that clot out. And I can remember a number of times where I've gotten some clot out and then all of a sudden you see the spurting vessel. Aha, there it is. Whereas if you blow that clot out and that vessel starts hemorrhaging, now you're looking through just all sorts of stuff coming at you and all sorts of blood coming at you and you really can't as easily identify. The downside of suction which you may or may not recognize, is that clots are big and clots are thick. And sometimes what you have in your toolbox to get rid of those clots doesn't work very effectively. So you can go up in your French from the perspective of your suction catheter, but sometimes you just can't get it out. Every week in the operating room, there's sometimes a blood clot that I just can't get out with a suction, no matter how big it is. And so that can be a challenge or a limiter from the perspective of visualization. Once you get the clot out, and you're able to visualize what's going on in the nose. Recognizing that the biggest bang for your buck is gonna be anterior in the nose, and that's the most likely spot that this is gonna happen. Most data would suggest about 90 plus percent of nosebleeds come from the anterior aspect of the nose. And uh, most bleeding is gonna come from that septum. It's not gonna come from the turbinate head, although it can. It's not gonna come from the sides of the nose or the ala. It's gonna be on the septum because the septum is a structure that sees a lot of trauma from nasal picking. It sees a ton of dryness because of the air traveling in the nose and depending on the area of the world that you live in, it can certainly be more dry than the other. We certainly see that in Minnesota, especially in the winter time. So focusing on that area of the nose when you get the clot out is gonna be really important. And sometimes there isn't one particular spot. It's not one particular vessel that you can see spurting arterially or you know a significant ooze. Sometimes it's just a very diffuse ooze from the septum that's really hard to pinpoint. Posterior bleeds, you're not likely going to see those either. 
You can't see those with your eyes. It's hard for me to see those with my eyes. Understanding, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but understanding the risk factors for posterior bleeding is the most important thing to understand. So that when somebody comes in with a profound amount of blood who fits the risk factor, then that's the person to call. That's the person that you want to get ENT involved in so that we can assess that risk and decide if somebody needs to be looked at sooner or not. I'm thinking about that 90% data point you gave. And I can't recall how many years it's been since there was even a question of a posterior bleed under my care. And and yet 9 and 10, I would expect I would see one posterior bleed a year. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a great point, Vank. It's a rare event. Yeah. It's a rare event. And even uh, not all posterior bleeds are catastrophic. There's certainly bleeding that can come from the posterior circulation, the sphenopalatine artery uh, and its branches, posterior septum, that uh, can occur really commonly after some sort of procedure. You know, when we do sinus surgery, those arteries are at risk. And that brings up an interesting point of any patient that you're seeing in the emergency department that's had a recent surgery, that's a high risk for some bigger arterial bleeding postoperative issue. So that's not one where, of course, as you guys are always excellent at involving the surgeons and their care of their postoperative patients, but that's not one to pack and let go. You know, that's one that is needs a, a further, more careful evaluation. But I think you're right. I think, you know, historically we say this 90-10, but in my whole residency, I can recall maybe one or two that I thought was a real posterior bleed and that we identified that. So it is, it is rare, luckily. So, so far we've walked in the room. Yeah. We're assessing the patient's look and is there a blood everywhere versus something that's real tidy. We've gathered our supplies, all the different equipment, medications, wipes, drapes, etc. Um, to do this. And we're evacuating clot with suction or having them blow. Actually, and the patient already had a clip on, which I think yeah. is just something we're so fortunate about in our environment is oh, yeah. nursing will place a clip in triage. Yeah. And I think EMS even has clips, yeah. don't they? Yeah. They yeah. Do. do you uh, think those clips work? Oh, yeah. Okay. I give them to my patients. Okay. Yeah, I Perfect. We have clips in our clinic and we send them home with them. I think it's very helpful. The reason is and this is a really good point, is that most people who are using hand pressure aren't gonna be able to do it long enough. Yeah. So when I'm in the clinic with a patient, I've dealt with their nosebleed, I'm gonna tell them, here's what we wanna do if this happens to you at home. Here's the protocol. And I'll give them a couple clips and I'll say, if you have a nosebleed, and if you have afferent at home, spray some afferent in both sides. Don't just on the side of bleeding, do it on both sides. And then put that clip on and look at a clock and give yourself 20 minutes. And then once that 20 minutes goes by, let that clip go and don't sniff, don't do anything with the nose, just see if it's bleeding. If it's bleeding again, if it's still oozing, still bleeding, more afferent, more sprays to see if we can get better topicalization in there. And then put that clip on again. Wait another 20 minutes, give yourself a full 20 minutes. And then after that 20 minutes goes by, we take that clip off again and we assess again. And if it's bleeding again, now you're in 40 minutes into this and you use a clip again. So after about an hour of pressure with topical medication at home, if they are still not having control of that bleeding, that's when I tell them you got to go to the emergency department. It's just not likely going to be improved by home remedies. That's really helpful. I've been using 15 minutes, but why not go to 20? It makes sense. Yeah, I don't think it... Here or there. Here or there, but it it is an important thing. The persistence of that and and then the degree at which they 
leave that clamp on for long enough, I think is an important part of that. How do you instruct them where on the nose? Because I see sometimes the clip doesn't look appropriately seated. Yeah. How do you tell them? I, put, the I tell them, put it on the soft part of your nose. Just And I usually will visually show them mm-hmm. when I'm kind of clamping that front part. Those levels of the nose, the upper third, middle third, and the lower third, really the clamp is really designed for the lower third. And so it's just at that part of the nose that's going to be most successful. The middle third of the nose, which is still somewhat soft, the incidence of bleeding way up there on the dorsal aspect of the nose is very, very low. And so you're going to get your biggest bang for your buck there. While the clamp is on, I've heard some folks talk about a cold compress over the bony part of the nose. Yeah. I remember distinctly, I was in the west hallway of our emergency department, and a small town BLS EMS crew came in with an epistaxis patient and had a cold pack on the back of a patient's neck. And I said, what is that for? (laughs) And this ENT volunteer just was not happy with my assessment of her intervention. And so (laughs) I've looked this up, let me just say. The goal, obviously, there is vasoconstriction. Okay, so if we're vasoconstricting the posterior neck, there is no support there whatsoever. Now, the anterior neck, the Germans actually got into this a little bit with a study that looked at laser dopplerography of the nasal mucosa in a microscopic fashion, only the Germans with their technology. And they put cold packs on the nasal bridge and saw some decrease in nasal flow, but not statistically significant. Whether it works or not is, I think, unlikely in a situation where they're in your emergency department for bleeding, but it's also not particularly invasive either. And so I I wouldn't fault anybody for trying, but I wouldn't think that it's likely going to provide any benefit. But not on the back of the neck. Not on the back of the neck. (laughs) And you had been a paramedic. I so, know. That's so, probably where it came from. I was like, I've never done this in the rig. Yeah. Are you joking? And they probably didn't know. I, it was a, probably an old wives' tale, and oh. that's so so be it. Great. Yeah. You got to try something, right? Right. Yeah. Where we're at with the patient now is that we're sort of in the room. We've blown clot out. We're topicalizing. We're holding pressure, and we've gotten clot out. We're sort of looking in there and getting a sense of what we need to do. I think the degree of bleeding that you're still seeing at that point is going to be very telling for your next step. The oozing that you can easily deal with, with suction and visualization, the next thing I would think about is non-absorbable packing. The oozing or the bleeding that you cannot see around, it is significant. That we start to tend to think about the more persistent or I label it as permanent, but it's not permanent. It's robust. It's non-absorbable packing. Things like mirror cell sponges, things I've seen in the emergency department like rhino rockets, those kind of interventions are going to be the interventions that we're probably going to have to use. Mainly because that non-absorbable packing that we utilize is self-administered, slowly placing more and more packing. And if somebody's hemorrhaging and there's blood pouring out of the nose, that's just going to be a failed effort. So the degree at which that blood is coming out of that nose is an important determination of what you have to do next. Do you have a go-to? I would say if I was going to describe my very blunt approach, Mm -hmm. so far we've been kind of in line. You know, I walk in, I have them blow the clot out. I look to see if I'm able to see the area of bleeding, and I'm really looking at Kisselbox plexus and trying to say, is it here? If it's continuing to bleed at that point, usually we've had the clamp on for an hour and 
in my skill set, I'm going to move progress more quickly to what you describe as uh, permanent packing. I haven't heard that. And so I'm going to use something like a mirror cell. And one of the ENT residents, when I was a resident, showed me how to wrap a, a surgicel foam on it to help with clotting on the medial aspect of it. And I basically am inserting that and then I'm using my TXA on a atomizer and using that then to expand the mirror cell. So it sounds like you have a much more (laughs) kind of graded approach, which I'm sure the patient appreciates. Mine is much more like, oh, we've hit this point, it's bleeding, and they're going to get all those things. Because from my point of view, I'm doing that and I'm giving it, you know, I don't know, like 20 minutes. If that's not working, we're kind of in a spot where I'm probably going to reach out to an ENT. Yeah, and I'm not naive to the fact that the way I'm describing this management is one of time and a single patient in front of me. So there are definitely instances, I distinctly remember them, where you just don't have time to sit there for 20 to 30 minutes and, uh, you know, investigate every aspect. So the degree at which you're seeing the bleeding, I think, will help you determine how aggressive you really need to be. And that pathway that you just described is an excellent one. In fact, that's exactly what I was planning on talking about. Verbiage in regards to packing, I probably should take out or think differently about the permanent and more describe it as absorbable versus non-absorbable, with the non-absorbable versions being the things like the mirror cell sponges and the rhino rockets, things that have to be removed or it will always be there. The things that don't need to be removed, things like fibrillar sheets, surgicel, those kind of things, those are the more the, the absorbable packings. Before we do move on, though, yep. I would love to hear, because something I'm envious of mm-hmm. is the concept of absorbable packing and how exactly you approach that, because that's something that I see happening, and it, it takes care of a certain number of our patients who go home and have your life than if yeah. I do my next step. Yeah, the non-absorbable packing, the downside of that is patient comfort. Nobody enjoys having their nose plugged. Certainly... If, And this is my spiel away from rhino rockets. Rhino rockets hurt. They hurt a lot for a lot of patients, especially if they're inflated too much. And I don't think they add a lot of additional benefit than what you described, which is a mirror cell sponge wrapped in a non-absorbable pro-clotting agent like Surgicel. So that's my spiel against rhino rockets. To your point, when and how and, you know, what's the technique to get that I think the thing that's really important is that it's a packing. The non-absorbable material that we put in the nose is just like a mirror cell sponge in regards to volume and pack. So if, for instance, let's just take a common scenario where you're seeing a lot of this sort of oozing on the anterior aspect of the septum, you're going to leverage that by getting a lot of fibrillar, for instance. It's a great non-absorbable packing. It's not going to be just a little piece of it off of that sheet. It's going to be multiple, maybe 10, 12 pieces. And you place that fibrillar on that bleeding area. You quickly get another piece and you get another piece. You're building on itself to add ultimately a big cotton ball size pack that has not only the procoagulant effects of the fibrillar, but also has the pressure effects because you're going to end up packing that front part of the nose. Now, the benefit for the patient becomes once that clot is formed and the healing starts, 
they'll be washing their nose out with salt water, at least keeping that moist. And then over a period of days, maybe even up to a week, that's going to be exiting their nose on its own and it's going to dissolve away. That's how that ends up working. And they like that a lot more. Something that's embarrassing for me is I've opened the packets and there's Surgicel and Fibrilar, but I don't understand deeply the differences in the characteristics of them. Surgicel is kind of a little bit more foamy (laughs) and then the Fibrilar is kind of a a mesh mesh. But, you know, when do you pick one or the other and how do you actually use it? Yeah, let me correct you a little bit there. So there are, I would say, three main types of absorbable packing material. One is gel foam. Gel foam is that it almost looks like a brick and you can squish it down. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be able to tell you distinctly what particular type of material each one of them are. I think actually, if I had to guess, I bet Surgicel, which is that latticed material, it looks like a piece of gauze. And then Fibrilar, which is a almost like a cotton candy consistency. I bet those are two similar products that just are formulated differently. I could be wrong. The gel foam, I don't think it's as great because once you squish it down and flatten it to get in the nose, unless you push it and hold it on that septum and just wait for it to be there, it's not as absorbent. Okay. And if you ever go to take that off, it's just going to tear everything and kind of bring that clot with you. I don't like that as much as I like the Fibrilar and the Surgicel. Those two are my two go-to. And how do I decide which one I'm going to use? I only really use Surgicel, again, which is the lattice kind of gauze-like material. If I'm going to wrap a mirror cell in that to add some additional procoagulant material, or if I'm just going to put a small square on the septum or on an inferior turbinate in that area, Fibrilar I'm going to use when I'm, I want to pack the nose with something. Okay. I want to put a bunch of material in there to act like uh, absorbable uh, mirror cell sponge. That's kind of how I'm going to treat that. And both work very well. It's just the volume. Sometimes I got to go through one, two packs of Surgicel or Fibrilar to get it done. I've always stopped at one and I don't find great success, but yeah. I'm excited to try this. I mean, remember in the old days, Annie Sadosti, she was a big proponent of Vaseline packs. This was the six feet of half inch to an inch in Vaseline impregnated gauze that you would layer in the nose to pack the whole nasal cavity. Technically challenging, I'm sure Sar do it. She was excellent at it. Technically challenging, uncomfortable for the patient, but very effective, not only for anterior bleeds, but posterior bleeds. But if you think about that in regards to what you're trying to do with fibrillar, you really have to plug that nose, pack that nose. And so using a lot of it is a good thing to try, not relying on just one pack. Sometimes that, that I've run into this situation where if you grab a little piece of fibrillar and you put it in the nose and it immediately soaks with blood and it's not very effective. Okay, take that out, get more, put it in there, get it almost like a pressure type of situation and then follow that with more, follow that with more, follow that with more until the bleeding stops and you'll have, you'll have good success with that. That's great. So we've talked about the two different options basically based on how much blood we're seeing and how localized we can be with it, the non-absorbable versus the absorbable packing. And when that fails, hopefully it doesn't happen often, but if it does, is there something else that we should be doing in the ED before we reach for the phone to call? As I think about this, the other important thing, so I'm going to back up just a little bit and talk a little bit more about non-absorbable packing. So the mirror cells and the uh, rhino rockets. 
I think one thing that's really hard to understand from an anatomic perspective is where do I need to put this thing? Oh, thank you for touching on this, yeah. The nose, and I see this almost with every single patient I see in the uh, clinic, that I say, hey, we're going to utilize some nasal sprays. And I tell them how to use your nasal sprays. And everyone will show me like they have a bottle in their hand and they point the the bottle up into the nose. Exactly. And that is bad on a nasal spray perspective, and it's really bad on an epistaxis treatment perspective because you will be immediately frustrated as you try to put that four centimeter <laughs> or eight centimeter mirror cell. This is where you talked about, I've run into a little bit of resistance. <laughs> yeah, the resistance, exactly right. So you will be immediately frustrated in that scenario because that is not where the nasal airway is going. And as you progress along your career in emergency medicine and you become more facile in airway management and you put in nasal trumpets and you transnasally intubate people and all these things, you quickly become and realize that hugging that floor of the nose, putting that mirror cell parallel to, for instance, the feet or parallel to anything in the body that's sort of in an anterior-posterior direction is going to lend just so much more success. So that's the one thing I see where people fail with the the non-absorbable packings or the mirror cells or the rhino rockets. The next place that I see people fail, which is no fault of their own whatsoever, is the nasal anatomy on the inside. I quote people this every day in the clinic. I say 80% of people have a deviated septum, 80%. So the likelihood that you're going to find that 20% person with a really bad nosebleed, that that mirror cell is going to slide in just like butter, is really rare. And the degree at which that septum is deviated obviously varies widely. Maybe the degree at which I operate on septums varies widely. And so if you have that proper trajectory along the floor of the nose and you're hitting a lot of resistance, that's probably the septum. And that's probably not something that you're going to be able to get around. Now, I've definitely seen many people try, which is extremely painful and probably is causing, especially in an anticoagulated patient, a lot more problems. Because now you've taken all that septal mucosa and a hard mirror cell, even if you coat it with a little bit of Vaseline or bacitracin or something to help get it in, now you've just scraped up all that mucosa going in. Are those things that you do in terms of pro tips? Well, when I was an intern, my chiefs would say, put Surgicel, and we would sometimes do double mirror cells. So we'd do two mirror cells wrapped in Surgicel. And then I found like that hard piece of cardboard you're trying to shove in a nose, unless you get a little bit of lubrication in there. The downside of that is now you've coated all your Surgicel with a blood yeah, it's like uh, waxing. Barrier. Exactly. Yeah. Barrier. So there's a double-edged sword there. How much of that Surgicel is really providing the benefit, I think, is questionable. So I think more along the lines, if you're doing a big mirror cell pack, it's the mirror cell that's causing. I think the better key is what you described, which is what are you going to inflate that with? Before the TXA area, I would just inflate it with topical oxymetazoline or phenylephrine spray. And that was a really good adjunct, I think. But it's hard to get those things in. It is. And if your trajectory is right and resistance is being met significantly, I think you just got to stop. Because there's a a lot of very badly deviated posterior spurs that it's going to be really hard for people to see. Should we then take it out, cut another one shorter, and then put it in? I was just going to get there. Great example. So when I was down there, there were the shorter mirror cells and the longer ones. And you can certainly take a long mirror cell and you can shorten it. One thing I'd recommend, if you're going to cut a longer mirror cell in half, just round those edges over. That's going to be a lot easier to get them in inside. 
and you can even taper it. You can go from a thicker, wider part of the mirror sill up front and then taper it down to a narrow thing on the back to see if you can get it in there easier. But yes, I would definitely try the shorter version if you're not having success with the longer version. And the Rhino Rockets are the same way. More bulky, got to have the right trajectory. The pressure at which you're inflating that that Rhino Rocket, I think, is very important. I think at any point that the patient starts to say, yeah, that's too much, you got to stop. The thing that I worry the most about is if somebody puts a lot of pressure in there, is going to overcome that ability for that mucosa to maintain its circulation. It's going to work really well from the perspective of bleeding, from the perspective of the pressure. But also I've seen some erosions in the nose from those things. And although those things typically heal, the worst case scenario is that if a patient doesn't come back for seven to 10 days or something like that, you could run into a decent amount of problems. Mm. I know one problem we used to think about with Mm. packing for a long time was infection. Yeah. Is that something we should still be worried about? I am almost certain there are studies looking at it. We definitely have seen studies look at, you know, antibiotic prophylaxis after nasal surgery for plastic splints that we put in the nose. And there are studies that say the utility of that, the rate of reduction of toxic shock syndrome is not worth the potential downstream negative effects of antibiotic use, whether it's C. diff or allergy or whatever the case may be. My current practice is that unless there's a strong reason not to, somebody's had come in and they have 18 antibiotic allergies on their med list, that it's it's probably still a good idea to protect them against staph or strep from their packing. Three to five days of an anti-staphylococcal, anti-streptococcal antibiotic is not, typically not going to hurt a lot of folks. That one in a million, once in a career toxic shock patient that goes into full-on sepsis and loses limbs because of it or whatever because of nasal packing, that's something that you'd never want to see. Although, again, I think the likelihood of that is extremely, extremely low. I think you could certainly debate and look through the literature very thoroughly to not find a lot of strong evidence to support the use of antibiotics in that space. The downside of it, I think, is pretty minimal, at least in my practice, continue to recommend it. I think the other thing you have to sort of think about from the ER population is that how secure is their follow-up going to be? We have a a great benefit of being here at the Mayo Clinic and having access to follow-up, but in other places that might not be the case. And so if somebody's going to end up not showing back up for 7 to 10 days, that's going to increase their risk. So probably a good idea to cover them in that situation. Those points are all well taken. Let's say the patient isn't getting worse and we're just considering alternate therapies. So we've talked about using packing, and I I perceive that that's a situation where I, I have a pretty good idea where the bleeding is. I can see it, and it's not overwhelming. I'm building up my packing with, with my skill level. There's kind of the technique that I think a lot of ED providers are going to use with some sort of Miracel or a Rhino Rocket. Like, do you use Rhino Rockets? I, no. I end up not using them. It's just they're so uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, causes a lot of issues. I feel like people are going to pull it. But Another thing is the question of when do you jump to cautery? So the only place that I feel like cautery should be utilized in the emergency department is for the very mildest of bleeding. The first thing to understand is that you're probably going to have typically two types of cautery in the emergency department. We used to have an old Cameron Miller cautery system, which was an electrocautery system that would be wheeled around the ER once in a while, rarely used, thankfully. And then chemical cautery. I feel like I could get into a lot of trouble with something like that. That's something (laughs) a well-intentioned person could. It's exactly where I'm getting with this. 
Chemical cautery with silver nitrate sticks is a commonly used primary care intervention, and I think certainly still used in the emergency department. And the patient that I would feel is a good candidate for that is somebody with a very mild amount of bleeding and a blood vessel that you can see and treat with a single solitary application of that on one side only. Where I've seen people get into trouble with silver nitrate cautery is this sort of painting of the septum, and sometimes on both sides. It's a chemical injury, and so there have been situations that I've had to repair septal perforation in that setting because it was used too much, too frequently, the mucosa is lost on both sides, the cartilage dissolves away, and now you have a new problem. In my practice, I still occasionally use it. It's not an absolute no. It, it can be a valuable intervention for people with very focal, blood vessel driven. There's a blood vessel, I feel like I can touch it, and I'm only gonna just barely touch that mucosa and get that treatment. I'm gonna stay away from painting, and that can be a pretty helpful intervention. The other downside of this is that you're creating an injury, right? So I would be very hesitant to use chemical cautery in any anticoagulated patient. Because what's going to happen is you might solve that problem up front, but then once, unless they keep the area very moist and very healthy along that time point of healing, that's going to escar, that's going to scab, that's going to crust, and it's going to bleed again. So that's why I don't like that in anticoagulation patients. In my training, I tr you know, I tried it sometimes, and then as an ED doc, I just see a lot of bounce back from it. And so mm -hmm. where, where I've landed, this is probably controversial, but I do not do cautery in my yeah. practice. And the example you gave is a great one, and I hadn't thought about it in that nuance. I think if I hadn't, maybe a patient who's on no anticoagulation with a very mild bleed who I could see this one spot, maybe I could be talked into that plan. But, but not a patient that usually goes to the yeah, and <laughs> Talk yeah. to me about how you're applying it. Are you taking the end of the silver nitrate stick and just dabbing it, yeah. or are you holding it on that little vessel? No, I just dab it. It's the chemical touching of the mucosa that does what it's designed to do. And if you hold it and dab it there, you're just gonna spread that chemical destruction out because it's just leaching off the end. And then what's gonna happen is when you pull it off, it's gonna kind of pull off the clot or whatever you've cauterized and cause some more bleeding. I really run into, in particular, what you said, which is you feel great in the moment, and then in a day or two, there's a much larger bleed. Yeah. That when I do it in the clinic for very specific patients, again, Somebody who's come in, hey, doc, I've had three months of this nosebleed on this right side. It's not bleeding now. I look in that nose, and I see lots of Kesselbeck's plexus, but I see one that I think is it. I've got two options at that point. One is electrocautery, which we have lots of equipment and setup to do in the clinic effectively, and I think of chemical cautery. Typically, just depends on how big the blood vessel is. For instance, the smaller ones do better with the chemical cautery. The bigger ones do better with the electrocautery. It's much more of a setup, much more issues with grounding and other things with, with electrocautery. So there is a good patience for chemical cautery, but they're few and far between. And in your practice, I think it's, it's really far between. Very helpful. Mm -hmm. Outside of packing and cautery, are there any other options we need to be aware of? Yeah. When we're talking about the most critical of critical, I think it's important thing to understand that, as you all know, airway is the biggest thing to deal with. I do definitely recall patients who have died of epistaxis because not so much of hemorrhage, but of aspiration of blood products. So in any situation where the patient is not adequately maintaining their airway, they're tired, they're hemorrhaging, it's a lot of blood, and they're elderly, whatever the case may be, I would always, always recommend that 
we don't think of a nosebleed as a minor issue in those settings. We think of it as a critical issue. And securing that airway is the number one thing. And then after that, the other things that can be done, we're going way down the, the ladder here, but you know, embolization, interventional radiology sometimes can be utilized. But you know, if you're going to involve those folks, you're typically going to have uh, otolaryngologists on board too. Outside of that, utilizing what we've already talked about, the topicals, the absorbable, the anti-absorbables, in that situation where you brought up before with Dr. Cabrera, the Foley catheter can be used in a very emergent situation to sort of plug off. What that is really designed to do is to plug off the posterior pharynx from the lower airway to provide a safer airway while that patient's still bleeding up north. That's a very important tool that can be utilized. Those are the main interventions that we talk about here. The only other one, kind of the commercial product that I think of that's similar to a Foley is an epistat. That's mm-hmm. kind of what what we have here at Mayo, where we would inflate the posterior balloon just to plug it off and then try and use an anterior balloon. This is a great, yeah, there are commercially available posterior bleeding Foley type of balloons, which it has an anterior balloon, it has a posterior balloon, it's a nice intervention, it's nicely packaged, uh, that can work very well as, as well. When I think about the worst cases of my career, kind of a lower airway bleed or something like that, it just happens in minutes that these airways fill up and you essentially drown. And so that's kind of the pathophysiology I'm trying to prevent. And so I'm trying to put a block between the source of bleeding, even if I'm not actually tamponading the bleed. And we were talking about using a a red rubber Foley or an epistat, something like that. A last pro tip, when I've deployed an epistat in the past, it, it seems like it's constantly slipping backwards. And these are also moments where sometimes I'm under a lot of stress. And so there's kind of a lot going on. And it seems like that balloon that I'm using, I deploy the balloon and then I pull anteriorly to try and plug. I deploy my anterior balloon, which I'm hopefully tamponading. But then it seems like it kind of starts to go posteriorly and I keep trying to tug it forward. Is that a normal thing or am I doing something wrong. No, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. The same thing happens with Foley catheter balloons. Yeah. And it's just a matter of, I think getting as a lot of air in that balloon is mm-hmm. important. The problem is, is where's the wedge going to be right. with the balloon? And it's a hard place back there. It's a very complex, you know, 3D structure and with it's all very slippery. Mm-hmm. And so what you're experiencing is I think, okay. very, very normal. What if we put the football helmet on and, yeah, exactly. and tie it to the grill? Exactly. What was the name of that big, is it the Minnesota 2? The Minnesota 2, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Never saw that deployed. I haven't either, but. I do remember one patient who probably could have used it with Wyatt Decker and I were in West and some guy had esophageal varices. And I was talking to him and he vomited like two liters of blood in front of me one day. And I was just like, oh my God, in West. <laughs> I'll never forget that guy. Those were always exciting adrenaline when you're moving the patient over critical receiving or transmitting it it was always exciting there was never a direct route either you had to like (laughs) (laughs) exactly Exactly. were you around in the old er days or no i was not i'm envious of the stories i hear about cool things happening in old critical and uh the curtains all the curtains yeah yeah good times absolutely so uh, continuing with our anticoagulant patient we talked about warfarin but does anything change with DOAX? And do you have any anecdotal experience on which one is more frequent with epistaxis? The presence of these uh, direct oral anticoagulants, the Eliquis, the Xareltos, came after I spent a lot of time in the emergency department from a residency perspective. I don't, in my clinic, have 
one or the other that's more problematic from an epistaxis perspective. You both probably have more experience with the challenges related to, well, what do you do if you have a critically bleeding patient on these medications and the likelihood, you could probably just educate me now more than anything about how easy it is to reverse these individuals because it was obviously a fairly straightforward and easy thing to reverse uh, warfarin anticoagulated patient or coumadin anticoagulated patient. I don't know distinctly if there's a significant difference between the two. I think that they're equally as bad of a players in the space of nasal bleeding, but I think the challenge in the acute phase of the airway tragic, horribly hemorrhaging patient on anticoagulation is a real one that I, I expect has some, hopefully some solutions at this point. I mean, I read about this, that, and the other thing that you can give, which I'm sure is like $20,000 a dose. We have and, expensive reversals. Yeah. And we do give them for head bleeds. Head bleeds and things, yeah. Let me lead into a question. Yeah. At what point do you think that we should be considering reversing anticoagulation? I've never had a bleed that I've not been able to control on anticoagulation. That you can always either, whether it's a cell or topicals or, you know, whatever. And so the decision to be like, we're going to stop this, I think is a fraught one from a surgeon's perspective. And probably a little fraught from an EM perspective too. You know, what's the risk here of somebody who's in chronic AFib and 80 years old that is going to be off their anticoagulation for seven to 10 days? I'm sure it's not zero. And there are people who spend their whole lives discussing risks of this. You know, in that case of warfarin, it was pretty straightforward, right? If your INR is five or six or seven, you're like, well, you need to do something with that. That's not going to be a tenable solution. It's going to come problems, more problems. But the cessation of these medicines in the sodium epistaxis is a shared decision-making process for sure. And certainly have had patients in my career where we think about that because even in the best of intentions in my clinic and operating room, there are people who just recurrently will bleed and no matter what we do, no matter what intervention we have with anticoagulation, and then that discussion then is entertained between all the parties. What are we really trying to do here? Keep somebody out of the ER five times a month or protect their one or 2% risk of clot in the setting of AFib or whatever it is, so. That's very pragmatic, I think. Yeah. After the interview, I went to the literature to see how warfarin and DOAX compare with regards to epistaxis. I came across a study from 2022 in the Journal of Internal Medicine by a group of authors from Iceland, with the lead author being Dr. Ingeson, entitled, Warfarin is Associated with Higher Rates of Epistaxis Compared to Direct Oral Anticoagulants, a Nationwide Propensity Score Weighted Study. As the title spoils for us, the authors found that warfarin was, was more associated with epistaxis, but as any discerning reader of the literature should do, we should examine how they came to those results and how likely those results are to apply to our patient population and be reflective of the truth. So, this author group compared epistaxis event rates between new users of apixaban, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, and warfarin throughout Iceland using the Icelandic Medicine Registry, which collates data from five major hospitals in the country. The results included just over 2,000 apixaban patients, just under 500 dabigatran patients, and about 3,000 rivaroxaban patients, compared with 1,500 patients on warfarin. Um, of this group of about 7,000 patients, there were 93 patients presenting for clinically relevant epistaxis. Again, this is in the initiation period of those medications. 11 of these bleeding patients were deemed to be major, with one fatality even recorded. 
seven of the patients in the non-major non-major bleeding group had rebleeding that was felt to be major during the follow-up period. They found that warfarin had 2.2 events per 100-person years, followed in descending order by rivaroxaban with one event per 100-person years, apixaban with 0.6 events, and dabigatrin with no events recorded. Remember, dabigatrin had the smallest portion of patients in the study, which may account for why no one had epistaxis. I would hate to suggest that dabigatrin is somehow protective against epistaxis. But in general, warfarin had a hazard ratio of 2.2 compared with rivaroxaban and 4.2 compared with apixaban. Again, it can't be calculated against dabigatrin because there were no events of epistaxis for that drug. In general, although nothing is ever perfect, and there are lots more details you might want to get into, like what is major, what is the time period in which they enrolled patients, etc., there's likely enough evidence here to feel that warfarin is likely more associated with epistaxis in the initiation period than the DOACs are. This doesn't say anything about patients who have been on their medications for longer periods of time, though. Okay, let's get back. We had gone, we're going on to a couple of special scenarios. But in light of our varied audience, some of our wonderful listeners are in community settings. And the question isn't, when do I call ENT, but when would I transfer? Yeah. And if you are taking that call from our admissions and transfer setting from a provider who is frustrated as I get sometimes when I've tried a couple of things, mm-hmm. what things do you feel should have been tried before a patient's going to take a, a, a potentially long ride? to RED to Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great question. And one I'm certainly sympathetic to as I used to work as a PA in these rural emergency department settings. And so pulling that trigger on transfer is definitely one that is uh, a tough call to make sometimes. And I think sometimes it's lost on the people taking those calls and how challenging those situations can be for them. So taking those calls, typically what I'll ask them is just what they've done and what they feel comfortable doing. In the epistaxis setting, it's typically because the patient's still bleeding, they can't control it. And if they've tried the topical sprays and the pressure and they've given a good effect or try with a rhino rocket or a Miracell sponge and it's still bleeding, they're still coughing up blood clots and such. I don't really know that there's much else that can be done. People talk a little bit about you know, there's systemic things that you can manage, like blood pressure and things along those lines. And I just don't know that that's a really particularly valuable exercise. I'm certainly not an expert in hypertensive crisis management, nor am I someone who routinely asks my emergency department partners to control blood pressure in these patients in this setting because, you know, they're in an emergency room and they're full of, you know, topical vasoconstrictors and they're in pain. And it's a hard situation to pull the trigger on that a lot because I just don't think it's a very valuable thing to employ. But in that situation, if somebody is still in the community and they're still bleeding and there's some sort of non-absorbable pack in place, then I, I don't really think that there's much else that we can do because what they probably need is somebody with the tools and experience to look and find and seek out that source of bleeding. And, and that's a reasonable thing to transfer. Do you control blood pressure, Alex, uh, on these patients? I haven't thought about it in this way. It's funny that you bring that up because if I have a in aorta, I'm so focused on that. I'm entirely focused on that, but I don't think about it enough in these situations. I guess I really haven't had somebody who has hypertensive urgency range pressures at the same time, unless it's due to pain from 
my instrumentation and stuff like that. And so I'm not very aggressive with my uh, antihypertensives. Are you? Several years ago, one of the ENT residents had come down and highlighted to me uh, one of the patients I had consulted them on with refractory bleeding had severe hypertension. And it got me paying attention. I noticed that most of the ones I consult had really, really high blood pressures, like 180, 190, 200. Mm -hmm. Eventually, at some point, I tried some labetalol, and I noticed that these bleeds became easier to stop. I don't know if it was the cause, but I just find that now I've built up enough personal anecdotes that when I see refractory bleeding, I bring the blood pressure down, and then I try some more, and it usually works right away. Yeah, I mean, I think the downside of, I mean, again, you two know about the downsides of antihypertensive medication management, IV or otherwise, but I think the downsides are fairly low. Um, Outside of, you know, going over, shooting, you know, making them hypotensive, it's not likely to happen, and it certainly can't hurt. Out of all the patients I ever saw in the emergency department from an epistaxis perspective, I don't think that there was one or two that I felt like, well, this is a hypertensive issue. It almost always was anticoagulation or just a really bad dry nose or a post-surgical issue. And so I think the incidence of it's quite rare. I'm going to jump in right here before Mike goes on to make an excellent correlation between blood pressure and the posterior bleeding risk factor profile. Uh, After the interview, I went to the literature to see what it would say on this. There are a lot of papers, mainly retrospective, examining a variety of angles related to blood pressure and epistaxis. A few I want to highlight. First, the question about whether the BP is up related to anxiety was examined by doctors Thong, Houghton, and Moore Gillen in their article in the Journal of Laryngology and Otology published February 2007 called A Retrospective Comparative Study to Examine the Effects of Oral Diazepam on Blood Pressure and Anxiety Levels in Patients with Acute Epistaxis. This study was not randomized, but was prospectively conducted in a tertiary care center in London between 2004 and 2005. They importantly excluded patients with known history of psychiatric disease, uncontrolled hypertension, and those who had experiences with benzodiazepines uh, for other reasons. This study was for patients who were hospitalized for epistaxis. Again, it's an older time period, and so I can't speak to how they chose hospitalization versus not. That's one of the areas that makes this less reflective of today's practice. In that hospitalized group, one arm of patients was given diazepam 2 milligrams three times daily, and the other was not. That decision was made by the attending physician caring for the patient. They found that blood pressures for both groups lowered throughout the admission at similar or comparable rates and at discharge were comparable as well. There were a lot of weaknesses when I try to apply it to my patients in my ED, and there might be some weaknesses when you try to apply it to yours. So I would encourage you before you take this as truth to go examine the paper, and that'll be true of all of these studies that I'm going to apply. But based on what this author group found, they did not feel that anxiety was the sole cause of the blood pressure elevation. Okay, the next question that the literature might help shed some light on is whether elevated BP is associated with persistent epistaxis, as is my personal experience. A study entitled Relationship Between Blood Pressure and Persistent Epistaxis at the Emergency Department, a retrospective study, was published in the Journal of the American Society of Hypertension by lead author Dr. Tarakura in July 2012. 
This was a retrospective examination of patients between 2009 and 2010 in a Japanese population. They found that the patients with epistaxis that had that was refractory to first-level therapy had significantly higher systolic blood pressure than their counterparts whose epistaxis was more readily treatable. The SBPs in the refractory group averaged 181 systolic and 156 in the treatable or uh, effective first-line treated group. The first-line treatment that they're talking about is the application of a cotton strip to the anterior circulation. These were only anterior bleeding and for 30 minutes in duration. Again, it's not great evidence to say what truth is, but it's some suggestion that BP might be associated with refractory bleeding. The third article I want to highlight is our new, more uh, most recent study of the three, and it's a Taiwanese cohort of patients that were investigated in a study that's entitled Evaluation of the Relationship Between Blood Pressure Control and Epistaxis Recurrence After Achieving Effective Hemostasis in the ED. This was published March 2020 in the Journal of Acute Medicine. They conducted a retrospective case control study during a one-year period in 2014. As part of their comparisons, they separated the patients into those that had a history of hypertension and those that did not, and then they did a separate breakdown of the patients, so all the patients, again, broken down separately by their triage blood pressure, regardless of their history of hypertension. And they broke them into four groups where group one had blood pressures, systolic blood pressure under 120 at triage, and group four had systolic blood pressure over 160 at triage, and two and three are in between there. In summary, they found that elevated blood pressures were found among patients with longer durations of bleeding, more recurrent bleeding, and those with higher blood pressures had more frequent returns to the ED within 72 hours for recurrent bleeding. Okay, let's get back. Mike is about to relate blood pressure and the posterior bleeding source likelihood. In that light, however... If somebody is elderly and they're male and they have a hard time controlling their blood pressure, those are the particular people that are at risk for the posterior bleed. And so paying attention to that is important. It's not not important. It raises your index of suspicion for a more posterior bleed, but I don't think it's a great source of our volume in the ER. We had talked about risk stratification as being the most important part of the posterior bleed. So male history of hypertension, recent surgery, mm-hmm. I can't see the source of bleeding. Is there anything else you're looking for when you're no. really trying to say this and it is can the be, path we're going to go down? There isn't really anything outside of that, and it can be tricky. Even when we think it's posterior bleeding, I've been on this end many times going in the operating room to investigate that and not seeing a direct source of it. Many times we are just assuming it is, and we treat that surgically with what is called a sphenopalatine artery clipping or dissection to essentially take care of that artery, take care of that posterior circulation. It's pretty rare actually from a surgeon's perspective to get somebody in the operating room who's been severely bleeding and see that spot, see that pumping artery or whatever the case may be. It's not a very gratifying operative intervention. It's more along the lines of, is this a patient that's set up for this? And if they are, should we intervene? How many times have been to the ER? Is this become an emergency? Have they dropped their blood clouds? Is this an issue? Do we need to intervene on that to hopefully prevent it? That's how we manage those things. To that end, when are you getting blood tests on these patients? 
from my perspective, the things I care about from a surgeon's perspective in the acute setting is, well, what are we dealing with from a blood loss perspective? Because the lower the hemoglobin goes, gives you sort of an idea, well, how much suffering have they had from a hemorrhagic perspective, which will then drive my decision to go to the operating room or not. You know, if they came in a month ago with a hemoglobin of 14 and now they're down at six, well, we got to figure this out. I think from a chronic perspective, somebody who has been dealing with this for months and months and months, there's probably some role in clotting factors and things. My knowledge does not go very far there. And so I'll use my friends and hematology and otherwise. Pretty rare circumstance, however. I mean, you know, if you look at a patient, for instance, young person who's now in the ER with lots of epistaxis, heavy menses, those kind of things, they raise your index to suspicion. But the standard patient of 70 years old on anticoagulation, it's wintertime. That's not very helpful. Sometimes I think people get concerned about whether or not there's CSF mixed in blood. Talk to me about how you approach that. The first thing to understand is that the HALO test Mm -hmm. is not helpful. There's certainly lots of HALO tests that are quote-unquote positive when somebody doesn't have a CSF leak. There really is only one distinct test. It's called beta-2 transferrin testing that can be done to identify CSF in any fluid. It can be nasal secretions. It can be earwax, whatever the case may be. You can use that testing. That testing is not an emergency department test. It does not come back soon. So I wouldn't worry about any blood that's coming out of the nose, whether it has CSF or not. In the setting of trauma, it very well likely will. If they have a skull base injury, there may be CSF there. It doesn't particularly change management from an epistaxis perspective. And if that's enough trauma, which in these cases it typically is, they're going to be admitted and looked at. And most often traumatic CSF leaks close on their own, but some do persist and need operative intervention. But I would get away from worrying too much of CSFs. It's not to say that we shouldn't worry about a CSF leak. It is important either from a traumatic perspective or an idiopathic perspective. It's important to figure that out. There are consequences to those problems. But in the acute setting, it's not something that you need to either deal with or identify. And certainly not with the use of the HALO test. That's not a valuable exercise at all. You segued nicely into trauma with epistaxis. Let's go through that. What changes, if anything? I think the biggest thing that changes is very innate or very important anatomic thoughtfulness about that trauma. You know, skull base trauma, mid-face trauma, where does that fracture go? You have all seen, including myself, where people have inadvertently placed things into the intracranial space. And so uh, certainly understanding that that's a potential with trauma. And if you're going to intervene in a space that you can't see, making sure you know where your tubes and hoses and packings are going is extremely important. The other thing to know about it is that in the acute setting, it is actually very uncommon to have persistent bleeding. I mean, impossible? Absolutely not. Not at all. I mean, a really significant mid-face fracture can certainly go through many significant vessels in the nose. But most of the time, even with significant trauma, there'll be a lot of blood up front. It will clot itself off and stop. So for the persistent ones in the trauma setting, those are the people that we're going to probably intervene with with the interventional group because they're going to be able to see the acute extravasation of a particular artery, even down to the SPA. They're going to be able to ligate those arteries pretty straightforwardly by coil embolization. So in that setting, that's kind of where we will often use our IR group. Mainly, in addition, because in the operating room, we don't want to take an acutely traumatized patient unless they're 
in dire need of some vessel ligation in the neck or something like that to the upper room. It just increases their risk. And in this group of individuals, people who have mid-face trauma, facial trauma, they're going to have head trauma. And so having a low-risk intervention like interventional radiology, I think, is going to be real helpful. So what I'm hearing is that with a select group of patients who had injury-based bleeding or trauma and bleeding, CT imaging might help guide interventional radiology to help us. How do we make that decision to pull the trigger on the image for epistaxis patients? So somebody has trauma, they're bleeding profusely out of their nose. You're going to be pan imaging them anyways. For a non-traumatic anticoagulated patient, I don't think there's a big place for it. I don't think it's going to help us. Now, if there's somebody who we can't take to the operating room, and for whatever reason, they're very otherwise sick, and we just are kind of in between a rock and a hard place, having trouble controlling bleeding, then I still don't think you need imaging, but you need to involve the interventional radiologist at that point, and they'll be very helpful there. One of my most challenging clinical encounters surrounding epistaxis, I saw a 20-something-year-old man who had very brisk epistaxis such that his hemoglobin had dropped four. He had hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia syndrome, and also I diagnosed him in that visit with a saddle PE. Certainly that's a very unicorn-type scenario, but it makes me think, what about these folks that have these telangiectasia syndromes? What do you do differently? Where I've run into it is, you know, an undifferentiated patient gets roomed and my resident walks out. You know, I've walked by, they look clinically stable and are looking pretty good. And my resident walks out and says, they want ENT to know they're here. And I go, oh yeah, sure. And then ENT's like, yes, this is a very important person to us. We're coming down. There's a substrate there that we want to know more about. HHT, in the old days, it was known as osler river Rondeau syndrome. Uh, no longer known by that, but HHT is a a really hard uh, condition to live with. Little nests of telangiectasias throughout multiple areas of the body. In the head and neck, we see it in the lips and the oral mucosa, and more importantly from what we're here to talk about today, the nose. The reason that they are so challenging is that imagine having 20, 30, 40 nests of telangiectasic vessels in the nose, all over the nasal mucosa, on the septum, on the turbinates, everywhere. And every time you breathe in, that air goes across those telangiectasias. And it doesn't take much. You can sneeze, and then it will open up. And it's not a small blood vessel. These are nests of fairly large-sized blood vessels in, in relation to other blood vessels in the nasal septum mucosa. So these people will have chronic epistaxis, multiple requirements for transfusion over the course of years, really bad quality of life. And from a surgeon's perspective, a really hard disease to fix because we'll go into the operating room and we'll try to coagulate or cauterize or laser treat these telangiectasias and more will come back. I was even a part of a group of patients that we surgically closed their nose off in an effort that's called the Young's Procedure. And that was in an effort to eliminate that airflow through the nose entirely so that those telangiectasias could no longer be irritated. A very effective maneuver, but also one that is a life-changing maneuver. Imagine just never being able to breathe through your nose again. Can I ask you, let's say that patient who had this procedure comes into our recess room. They can't talk to us, Mm -hmm. and we look in the nose. Are we going to know that this is not androedema 
closing off the nose like it looks like a post-operative yeah, thing it is very post-operative it looks okay. like just like a skin graft in the nose and okay. it's it's very anterior this was during my residency that we did this because we did not have a group of medications young's procedure was a much more commonly done maneuver a, a small group of patients a rare disease but a much more common maneuver than it is today with the advent of advastin which is essentially an chemotherapeutic agent that prevents blood vessel growth. And so the use of this has taken our HHT patient population out of the ERs, not eliminated it, but out of the ERs and with much less frequency. But these patients, 100%, if you are in the emergency department and somebody says they have HHT, it's a very common occurrence for them to say, call it the NT. I used to have a gal who would, she knew how to pack her nose. She knew what to pack her nose with. Unfortunately, as it is with all emergency department consultations, she'd see a new ENT intern and then the next new ENT intern and the next new ENT intern, and she knew how to treat her nose better than any of those interns did. And so they're very well in tune with it. It's a very hard epistaxis to, to treat. I feel bad for those folks. There are treatments. They uh, do pretty well over time, but it's a special population that definitely deserves some special attention. How would we mess that up? And when they say, I need to see an ENT doc, what is it that my routine approach would yeah. so mess up? So these particular patients, if you were enlightened enough to say, I'm actually a pretty good nasal packer. I want to see if I can get this done for you. The challenge becomes, there may be one telangiectasia in there that's causing the current problem, but if you just put a mirror cell in there, even if it goes nicely, now you've created eight uh, telangiectasias that are now causing bleeding. So the challenge becomes, how do you get in there? Usually what we did is we'd bring our scopes down and we'd directly find the telangiectasia that's causing the problem. And hopefully, without causing more trouble than we, when we started with, get a really stiff fibrillar pack, utilize, there's another thing that we used to utilize called flow seal, which is thrombin and gel foam mixed together. That was a really potent topical procoagulant. We'd use that. We'd use all the tricks on these people. But you can definitely make them worse by just trying to pack somebody in that situation. I can't imagine putting a mirror cell in here and then that call to the ENT intern overnight. Yeah. So I have a very interesting case. I have a good learning opportunity for you. You have eight telangiectasias. <laughs> oh my god. These goodness. people in that situation, they were commonly admitted to the hospital and many days of packing, trips to the operating room. It can be can become quite the quite the challenge. Like I said, it's life threatening sometimes and it's frustrating a lot. This is just getting to hear your approach and That's so, so common. Helpful. So yep. common. Oh my yep. god. And it either goes really well yep. or it's just uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to make it better, and it just seems like yeah. every time I'm getting I'm ready to walk out the door. I miss the ER epistaxis. You know, I I think it was none of my colleague interns residents would say the same, but no. I loved a good nosebleed. There was nothing better than intervening and making somebody better. Mike, thank you so much for your time. We miss you deeply here in the emergency department, but are really proud of who you are and what you do for the patients that we share. And um, thank you for spending time making us better at taking care of epistaxis. I want to take a moment to review or summarize what we talked about. And so it begins with when you enter the room looking to see is the situation chaotic or controlled? Is there active bleeding or is there a clamp on the nose? And making sure that clamp is in the right spot. The squishy anterior part of the nose is the ideal spot as opposed to up where the bony part of the nose is. It's not going to be effective. We're going to take a moment to gather some relevant history on anticoagulation, telangiectasia syndromes. 
what has been tried before the patient got to us, how frequent it bleeds, how prolonged is the bleeding, and assess risks for posterior bleeding, such as history of recent surgery, obviously if they're male or female, and then their history of hypertension. We're going to gather equipment, in particular the nasal speculum, the headlight, suction, ideally the Fraser suction, a flexible but straight 10 or 12 French um, suction catheter. We're going to have drapes such as a chucks and then a bucket or something for the patient to spit into um, or clear clot into. We're going to get medicines, have absorbable and non-absorbable packing at our disposal. We're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to work on topicalization, and the goals being vasoconstriction, anesthesia, and potentially even hemostasis when possible. How and what? This is best done with cocaine, but that's very rare that that's used anymore. Oxymetazoline, phenylephrine are two readily available treatments that can be used, and the goal is to feel like the the patient is experiencing that medication going into the pharynx and that that we're getting enough in there txa is newer on the scene and is also very helpful as an adjunct to these medications the key is to topicalize aiming anterior posterior rather than aiming towards the forehead for example in the same directional goal or key can be said for other things like inserting the packing that we're going to talk about later or that we already talked about and we're going to revisit later, and then also nasogastric tube insertion, nasal trumpets, etc. This anterior-posterior direction rather than a pedal cephalad direction. Um, we want to get the clots out, and getting the clots out can be done carefully and more gently with suction in most cases, but sometimes the clots are too big. But time and resources being considered, blowing the clots out is a reasonable method and one that both Alex and I deploy in the ED. Try to localize the bleeding. Is it anterior versus posterior? And posterior, you're not going to see it, but rather use history and um, the fact that you don't see an obvious anterior site and the degree of bleeding to suggest. When you're thinking about the anterior bleeding, do you see a discrete spot where the blood is coming from? Or is everything more diffusely oozing when you see a discrete spot this may be in very select cases the time where you might deploy chemical cautery but be careful in these situations where you can see the source of bleeding it's generally a great idea to try absorbable packing this is the surgicil or fibrillar really packed in there to um, create some temporary tamponade, but will absorb away and give the patient more comfort. Compare that with a situation where the bleeding is so profuse or you can't see um, beyond the source of bleeding to really get a good sense of things. That's generally going to mean you're going to need a non-absorbable pack. Um, these can be elevated in efficacy from strictly a non-absorbable pack to including a hemostatic dressing or medications as an adjunct with it. Now, be careful, again, if they have a history of telangiectasia syndrome, it's best maybe not to do that without involving your specialty teams right away. Also, when in inserting the packing, if you're meeting resistance, Dr. Olson suggests that 80% of the population have nasal septal deviations, and you might get around it by trimming the end of it to make a more uh, uh, amenable shape to insert it, or you might just not be able to get it in, and at least you don't have to feel like that's a failure on your part in any way. Lastly, we talked about antibiotics, and antibiotics, there's probably not 
evidence behind using them and there might be uh, some concerns with population-based care, but especially if your patient has insecure follow-up, Dr. Olson would still suggest that we should be thinking about antibiotics for those patients. We talked about a lot of other unique one-off aspects with regards to anticoagulation, blood pressure, telangiectasia syndromes, and more. So thank you for sticking around with us to the end. In the words of Fraser Crane, thank you for listening. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.